I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. It's been two years since I had the CEO of One Global, Mike Reynolds, on the show. Back then, he had just joined and was articulating a vision to build a global specialty broker under the newly created One Global banner. They always say that no battle plan survives the first shots of war, so I was really keen to find out how the business had executed on its plan and how it may have iterated its vision in that time. In that 24-month period, the specialist broking world has seen more than its fair share of M&A activity, and I wanted to put that into context. I found Mike on top form and incredibly candid and lucid about the market and exactly where he sees One Global fitting into it. He outlined the business's organic build and how some of the firm's early investments are starting to pay off. Our chat contained some great discussions, not least about sky-high broker valuations and intermediaries' sometimes difficult relationships with the public markets. But we also spoke about ESG, culture change, technological reform, and team building and broking culture, to name just a very few. Brokers are often run by visionaries who need someone else to come and make the vision work to the best of its potential. Mike brings a CEO's strong vision, but tempered with a CFO's practical experience. And in our sector, that's quite a rare phenomenon. That's why I commend this episode to anyone who really wants to learn how to build a specialty broker in today's market. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Well, Mike, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. Good to see you again. I was just checking up on the first podcast we did. It was just over two years ago now, episode 34. You used that podcast to set out your store for what you want to be doing with One Global. So now, a couple of years later, why don't you give us a progress update? You're quite right. It's been just over two years since I've been CEO of One Global. And yeah, we're progressing very well with our international and specialty build-out. We're seeing some real growth start to come through now in revenues from investments that we've made in that period. So for instance, we'll be up around 60% on revenues this year in the first six months. So those investments that we made a couple of years ago, really starting to kick in. I think as you understand yourself with an organic build, you know, you have lots of restrictions in place around people that you may hire. So there is a lead time, but it's definitely coming through now, which is great. And we've reshaped the business a little bit as well to focus more on specialty lines and geographic distribution. So we disposed of most of the low-level PNC binder business earlier this year. And we've hired some great talent in London in Singapore, in Dubai, Bermuda, Miami. So we've really covered off all the major markets, the insurance markets of the world. And we have a really committed and aligned executive team. So the world is our oyster, really. And as I say, it's all starting to kick in now quite nicely and happen. Our brand is still relatively young, but we are getting some traction with that now. And it's starting to become known around the world. And in particular, 
with the retail brokers in the US really starting to resonate there as well. So honestly, Mark, we couldn't be more pleased with where we are than right now. It's absolutely fantastic. And in terms of the amount of premium you've been handling in that two-year period, how much bigger is that now? Obviously, if you're projecting 60% growth this year, was it much in the first year or presumably it was a bit of a lag as you were talking about? The growth in the first year was relatively slow. And then we obviously disposed of a piece of the business as well. Yep. You know, But overall, we would have grown our premium base pretty significantly from the starting point, which I really sort of put back to June 2020 when we branded as One Global from the old SSL Endeavor. But yeah, I mean, certainly in the first six months of this year, we've got really good growth going on and the premium base would obviously match those sort of numbers I threw out there in terms of the growth. And in terms of headcount, obviously forgetting the binder, the disposal, sort of excluding that, what's the headcount looking like? Is it, is it much bigger? We're about 170 people now. So again, when I started, we were about 100 and then we had about 20 people that left us through the disposal. So we've probably more than doubled, I think, in terms of headcount. And we have some pretty significant growth plans ahead of us as well, particularly in real growth regions like LATAM and Asia, where we've been adding people quite quickly. So yeah, I mean, pleased with that. I think a doubling of headcount and plans to get well over the sort of 200 mark by the end of the year. And in terms of that expansion into international hubs, which was something you flagged up obviously two years ago, how does that change the balance of your business these days? I mean, how much of a London business are you versus uh, all the other international hubs? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really interesting question because obviously starting out with an acquired platform that was really put together before I came in, pretty much 100% of our business was London business uh, yeah. on a wholesale basis, mainly from North America and Europe. But if you look at it today, certainly by the end of this year, interestingly, we will be more like 50% international and 50% UK. So from that point of view, it's really changed quite dramatically. So you're getting better growth in international, even though we've got a very strongly growing London market at the moment. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the strategy for us, Mark, was to couple the international distribution with specialty line capability, mainly in London. So we do actually have some specialty capability in other offices as well, and they operate as virtual teams. But coupling that international distribution with specialty capability has been very successful. So that was always the strategy, and we can see it playing out now in the numbers as well. Now, within that specialty world, now that you've built this team, I presume you're still building, but are you a specialist wholesale broker these days, or can you compete with almost anybody across the board, across all the specialty classes? Look, I think that's a really interesting question because I wouldn't describe ourselves really as a wholesale broker anymore. Yeah. And we are certainly a specialty, a global specialty broking business. There's no doubt about that. So, for instance, again, on those statistics, to give you another couple of statistics, picking up the old SSL and Endeavor, that was pretty much exclusively a wholesale business. So, call it 100%. Whereas now we're probably 50% retail, 50% wholesale. So, again, it is that shift to building up retail business within these international operations. The only one area where we're very, very clear and always will be that we'll only operate on a wholesale basis is North America. And we've been true to our word on that. We always will be. It's not one of those ones like a JLT where that'll change. We're absolutely clear that that will always be a wholesale market for us. But elsewhere, Mark, you know, our strategy is to build up a retail business and to get close to the client base. And we've been pretty successful in that, winning some pretty large accounts. 
Right. And that's just because in the US, presumably, I mean, the primary market is so well served that some of those relationships and that expertise is there and you're just adding specialty onto something that's probably quite specialty from a retail perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting market. And the retail brokers in the US have a lot of choice in terms of how they access London. And I don't think any one broker will ever have exclusivity around that. It really depends on what your capabilities are in certain lines of business. And if you build up a really good capability that they can trust, then they'll utilize that for sure. So we're just focused on making sure as we build out these specialty teams that we get the right people into those teams, the right capabilities, and really face off to those retail brokers in the right way. And presumably in some of the other markets, there isn't that strong retail specialty knowledge. And I suppose are you sort of saying to the client, well, you might as well just come direct to us because perhaps the retail brokers, they might be good for some of the relationship stuff, but they're not going to add the value in the way that someone in the US might be able to. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. When you go to some of the other economies around the world, they're not as well developed as the US in terms of capabilities. And so that is correct. So it gives us more opportunity to be on the ground in specialty lines of business. But also, we can act as the wholesaler then wholesaling our own business to ourselves into London. And once we have all the capabilities lined up in London or Bermuda or Dubai, we can really hold ourselves out as being able to access all of those markets and cover off these specialty areas in a global way. But then from a business building point of view, having to service people directly is different and presumably it's more in resource intensive. So out in those hubs where some of those clients are, you've got some people who are really hands-on, I presume, and you know they're really walking the client through and hand-holding and all that. Absolutely. I mean... In the wholesale business in London, it's much more facing off to retail brokers in the US, for instance. But if you take our Singapore office, for instance, you know there's an office that we set up two years ago. We now have a headcount of over 20 people. We've won some very large accounts, and it's very, very hands-on in terms of the relationship and hand-holding with the clients, for sure. But you know, it is interesting, Mark, because... To break into some of those accounts against the opposition, which in some of those cases was just the big boys, we really have to get out there and demonstrate that we have all those capabilities, that we have people who can make a difference in terms of the relationships. And we've been able to do that. And it is a model that we can pursue. I suppose it's a longer term vision, isn't it? It's not something you can get the returns as quickly as you might be able to with wholesale. Yes, it is. And also, I would say that building out a brokerage firm on an organic basis, again, is a longer term vision. You can go out and do a roll up and acquire three companies and put them together and create returns, I think, quite quickly. There's also quite a bit of risk involved in that. But our model is definitely much more of a build it from the ground up model. And that takes a little bit of time. But that's why we started two and a half years ago. And now the real growth is really kicking in. Obviously, you had really impeccable timing, Mike. This hard market has carried on hardening during that time when others thought it might have fizzled out by now, but it's still going. But I'd like to ask you, actually, how far do you think this has got further to run before I put words in your mouth? Look, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think we're definitely starting to see a little bit of softening in certain lines. So I think it's becoming fragmented by line now. That's how I describe it. So more capacity has appeared in certain lines of business. Things like DNO, for example? Yeah, correct. So, you know, a year ago, next to impossible to get these things away. Now it's becoming a little easier. But we're still constrained in certain lines of business. I mean, cyber is a good example. Yeah, It's still very difficult to get any large cyber programs placed in the market. So we are constrained there. But clients are definitely seeing relief in certain P&C lines of business. And 
a slowing of rate increases, financial lines, energy, aviation, etc. Now, of course, then you come along to other dynamics. I mentioned aviation. We've obviously got all these leasing claims out there, which have been much traded in the market, much talked about in the press. And my honest opinion on that is that's going to take a long time to play out. And I, I don't think it's going to have an immediate effect on pricing in the market. I think it'll have an effect in terms of hardening, but it's not going to have that huge effect that it could have on an immediate basis. I think it's going to be slow pain, if you like, over the next year or two as those things go through the courts and play out. But obviously, we're seeing whole war rates on aviation under pressure. We're seeing the same thing in marine. And then you've got other drivers, such as the availability of capital in the reinsurance market. I mean, capacity is becoming constrained there now. And people are pulling back from certain lines of reinsurance. And I think the knock-on effect that's going to play into the primary market from lack of reinsurance capacity in certain lines, that's yet to be seen in the pricing in the primary market. So we've got a very complex picture overall. You know, Whereas I think we've started to see some softening in certain lines of business and better availability of capacity, there are unique things going on around aviation or around reinsurance capacity, all of which I think will potentially drive those rates back upwards. So complex picture. But in general, is it a fairly rational market? You can still get quotes, you can still find things if you get firm orders at those quoted terms? I mean, even though you may not be very happy with some of the premiums being quoted. I'd say it's a rational market for the most part in London. But what we actually find on a lot of our wholesale business is we bring programs to the market, we get decent pricing on the programs, we go back to the retail agent in the US, and then they use it to sort of go back to the local market who say, well, if they're going to write it for that, I'll write it for 30% less. And that's irrational. So I think certain markets are rational and certain markets are not. And that's what we deal with every day as brokers. It's an interesting market. You mentioned about accessing capacity. That's something obviously reinsurance brokers are good at. And when we spoke a couple of years ago, reinsurance was one of the plays. Obviously, that was in the context of the market dynamics of the time, which was Aon Willis was certainly still on as a potential deal. And all of that would have entailed and the huge amount of rearranging that's been going on and investments been going on in reinsurance broking ever since. Yeah. For one, how's it gone in reinsurance for you? And having a reinsurance capability, is, is that going to help you access some of that capital that others can't? Firstly, I think I was very clear up front that the reinsurance strategy would follow the specialty strategy. And so yeah. we really felt like we had to get size and scale within our global specialty business before we took on the reinsurance side. So we've focused mainly on the facultative side in reinsurance so far, and we haven't made any ventures really into treating. I think we're also clear that we're not going to set out to try and recreate one of the big players. And so, you know, getting into the heavy analytics, et cetera, et cetera, is probably not for us, given our size and scale. Yeah. So what we would intend to do is to focus on certain niche specialty lines of reinsurance business. So whether that's marine, energy, aviation, financial lines, et cetera. So essentially mirroring where we're strong on the specialty side. And we still think that that can be done. There will be opportunities to do that. There will be dislocation from all of these deals. I mean, I think you're still seeing the remnants of the dislocation from the JLT Marsh deal. And you know, a lot of them are on retentions, which come up this year as well. And so I think there'll be some more personnel dislodged. And then obviously you've got Howden Tiger and everything else, which was all hitting the news in the last couple of weeks. So 
Look, we will certainly do something on the reinsurance side, but we're not in a rush right now. And it will be in niche specialty areas with interesting players, I think, that we can access there. So you're not doing something big that might worry all those big competitors that they can probably leave you alone to your particular specialist niches? We're not looking for world domination. We're going to stick to our knitting, if you like, and focus on the things that we feel we're good at. Talking about broker consolidation, it does seem to have been particularly acute and things go in waves and it feels like we're at the crest of a wave. But that's usually the point where the wave that you're on gets crested by an even bigger one. But certainly through my career, it feels like one of those moments when some of these really epoch-defining deals are being done, but also because people are happy to pay very big multiples at the top of those waves. Do you think those sort of multiples that are being paid, not usually being confirmed, obviously they're mostly private deals, but confirmed by some of my former colleagues in the press, do you think they're sustainable? I think it's a great question, and we've seen some eye-watering multiples being paid. I mean, what I always find quite fascinating about that, I mean, having had my roots in the CFO roles and been involved in a lot of these deals, everybody focuses on the multiple, but they forget to focus on what it's being multiplied by. (laughs) And uh, quite frankly, it is interesting in one of those recent very large deals that's been in the press, the multiple of 18x has been quoted. But actually... That will be on an adjusted, adjusted run rate EBITDA. If you really look at the historical EBITDA and really look at the multiple, it's probably going to be much more like 25x or something like that. And that is eye-watering. But look, is it sustainable? I mean, it's such an interesting question because to my mind, you can't answer that question generically, okay? If you are buying really high-quality platforms and if you are confident that you can hold it together in terms of retention of the personnel. And if you're confident that it's really going to add to your strategy, then you can pay a high multiple and it will work. And actually, if you go back in history and look at how Aeon was built, back then, everybody was saying, oh my God, look at the multiples that are being paid for all these businesses across Europe and elsewhere. And you know, at the end of the day, that worked pretty well. So you know, it's, it's an interesting one. But you know, there will be mistakes as well, Mark. There will be people who go out there and pay very high multiples and they can't hold the business together. And that will be a problem. I suppose if you're buying that growth, say you're buying something that grows at 15% organically every year, then that does double in value every five years. So you'd probably think, well, I won't look at the multiple. I'm paying a high multiple for high growth at the same time. I would specifically quote the sort of Howard and Tiger deal because for me, it resonates because it's sort of recreating JLT Re. And I think it's a really smart deal, a really smart deal. There is no doubt that the mileage that that business will get, the tailwind it will get from being part of Howden's, will probably make that a huge success. So you can look at the multiple, you can look at the price and say, well, I wouldn't have done it. But at the end of the day, I think it's a good deal. Sometimes it's people like Pat Ryan, obviously, they don't look at the upcoming two quarters. They look at 25 years and we think 25 years after that big wave in the mid to late 90s. Yep. No one's going to say, oh, building Aon was a bad idea, particularly when you see the stock performance over the last 15. Mark, I left Aon in 2009. The share price was pretty tiny at that point in time. It was probably gone up, I don't know, 8, 9x by now. So you can't argue with that. But what is interesting, of course, is that Pat built it and Greg integrated it and really made it hum. So it's an interesting business. Yes, obviously, you've got private equity backing. And so metaphorically, that clock is always ticking at some point. And maybe it ticks louder when valuations are this high, because goodness me, at these prices, shouldn't we just sell? What sort of stage are you at with your relationship with JC Flowers? Great question. I mean, again, you know my career. This is actually the first time I've been part of a private equity banked and owned broker. And so I'm learning a lot. 
But look, what I would say about JCF is that I've always said to our stakeholders when I'm asked this question, private equity, look at a five to seven year time horizon. I think you could probably generically say that, and it's pretty accurate. And we are about to tick into year five of their ownership. So anything could happen at any point in time. But what I say to all our stakeholders is that's not something you should be focused on. Because at the end of the day, it's just capital and capital will come and go. There's plenty of capital out there that's interested in being part of this industry, as you can see, in the multiples that are being paid, et cetera. And so what we need to focus on as stakeholders in our business is just delivering for the client and building the business and, and being successful. And the other thing is, I would never have a strategic plan for our business that is aligned to a five-year time horizon. You can't do that. You can build a five-year plan, but it must be a part of something that is a much longer-term vision. And so we're really focused on building something that will endure for clients and for staff in 20, 30, 40, 100 years' time. So look, it's not something I sit there worrying about every day, and I don't think any of our stakeholders do either. And I suppose, given your size and the experience of other brokers in this space, that you can grow and you can then reverse in a new backer seamlessly. It can be done. The first backer sells, it makes their gain, and then a new backer comes in at this new high valuation. And then the next five, seven years, they double again. Of course. I mean, if it's a private equity backer that comes in, that's correct. If you end up at a trade sale, then it's a different scenario. But it's not something we're focused on day to day right now. That's something for the future, and we'll see where we get ourselves to. We were mentioning Pat Ryan earlier, but someone like him, we've had a fantastic IPO for Ryan Specialty Group. Again, perhaps highlighting that there's a bit of a dearth because private equity has got so much more powerful and has bigger financial firepower at its disposal. People used to IPO, people used to float on public markets, and now they don't. And when you float something that's a high quality franchise with good growth prospects built in, the public markets are really receptive to that because they haven't really got anyone else to invest in. Obviously, you've got the big three and a few others. But maybe 30 years ago, they would have had lots of smaller brokers that they could pick winners from. Is that something that might appeal to you? Another way of keeping your independence, but okay, you're never independent if you're a public company, but you could be more independent and looking at the sort of valuations that can be achieved. Might that work? Any and all things are on the table come the points of decision in the future around things like that. I mean, it is interesting that you actually don't see a lot of brokers that IPO at this point in time. So we have seen some historically. I mean, for instance, Baldwin Risk Partners, BRP in the US have gone public in the last few years. But I think there's a reason why you don't see that many brokers go public. And that is because to build a brokerage, you really have to invest very, very heavily through the P&L. And so once you become a public company, you've got to be at the point where you're sure that you can deliver the returns on a quarterly or half-yearly basis in the UK consistently and explain exactly what you're doing. And I think that in building a brokerage firm, you want to be able to put significant investment in up front and to trust that that investment is going to pay off in two, three years' time. And you know, sometimes the public markets just can't swallow that sort of investment cycle. So it can become tricky. And I remember at JLT, that was exactly the sort of fine line that we had to tread on that because being a public company, you know, stepping up there and giving the half-yearly results... You had to explain all this investment you were putting into the business, but you had to drive a return that the market expected as well. And just squaring that away in a public environment is tricky. I think any and all options we should look at in the future when we get to that point in time, but I just don't think we have the size and scale to worry about it right now. 
absolutely it certainly resonates. We remember in the later years of Benfield when they were trying to build Benfield corporate risk. Again, it became yeah. a six-monthly feast to see how much money they had invested in in the thing. And of course, with JLT at different times with a specialty, again, it became anything that is an investment, a and is bleeding red onto the PL. Um, yeah. which obviously you'll be sitting there saying it's investment. The investors are saying, well, well, that's money we could have had. Well, I think you're absolutely spot on. And it's quite interesting with JLT, they're all public numbers, but that US specialty business became a $100 million revenue business within two years, but it was still not good enough because it wasn't generating profit. Okay, it might take three years to get there. And at the end of the day, that is the problem with being a public company is you're going to get that level of scrutiny. And so you might make different decisions. So it's an interesting one. It's funny that an insure tech can tell that story and be received positively. And they want to see growth, but maybe an insurance broker can't. And there's probably something we can't change. I suppose an investor assumes an insurance broker must be quite conservative and quite defensive. Again, it's interesting because I think if you made that comment three, four years ago, you'd be absolutely spot on. I mean, insure tech, if you did anything in the insure tech space, anything with data and analytics, it was wow straight away. But how many of them have really worked very well? Can you name many that have really worked very, very well? No, no, no. And so now I think the attitude to that is a little more cynical. And that's probably right. You need to have a look at the business model. You really need to probe it and figure out whether it is something that is going to generate value for clients and for people and for shareholders, frankly. Well, Mike, while I've got you on the line, I want to pick your considerable brains about some of these big things that have been happening in the last couple of years since we last spoke. One of the things that's been really interesting me is this explosion in hybrid slash fronting carriers servicing MGAs and sort of often acting as a conduit, connecting them if they can, directly to quite long-term reinsurance capital. What do you make of all of that? I mean, so we've seen some really big numbers, you know, businesses like Brandon Quilter were accredited, posting, you know, billion dollar from almost nothing from a standing start, billion dollars of GWP handled. What do you make of all this? Is there something really big going on or is it something cyclical? Great question. I mean, first of all, I wish I was building an underwriter because you can write GWP very easily. <laughs> to drive broking revenues, you've got to go out, scrap and fight and really have the absolute best product and the absolute best teams to drive your revenue base. So it is interesting. I mean, I say that because, of course, we should always have in the back of our minds that there's a lot of premium flow out there in the marketplace and they can access it, not necessarily at the best type of business, not necessarily at the best rates, but they can drive top line very, very quickly, okay? And look, the MGA model, I think, in the last few years has become very prominent because it's efficient. It's very efficient. It has a low cost base. You know, it has an efficient capital base. And if you get the right underwriting teams together with the right capacity and you put them together and you have a strong offering, it can work very, very well. And so it's no surprise to me then that you get a lot of the sort of hybrid fronting companies stepping into the fray when that's happening, because where there is demand, supply will eventually find that. And I think that's exactly what's happening. There has been an explosion, though. It's pretty interesting. Does it appeal to you in any way? I think you've still got MGAs within your offering, haven't you? And obviously, it might be natural, particularly in some of those niche areas for some of the smaller premium, higher volume end of that, they might make sense. So you might avail yourself of some of this? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, it is an area at which we're looking very closely. And you'll know that we made some hires in that space yeah. uh, recently that, that have been with us since the start of the year. And we're looking very closely at our strategic plans in that area. It's not something we would want to ignore. It's something that can bring value to our clients. And I think where it can bring value to our clients and doesn't create a conflict, we would want to support that. 
those MGAs have been supported by a huge number of these incubator-style businesses. We never seem to have an incubator in the broking terms. It's all sort of, you know, come join my team and buy into my vision. Do you think there would ever be a space for a broker that is able to accommodate teams on that basis of to say, come and incubate your business within us? Well, we did have Capsicum, didn't we? I mean, I suppose that was a little bit of an incubator business. And it's an interesting one because I don't particularly think it lends itself well, certainly not to what we're trying to do, because I think you've got to look at the cultural aspect of the whole thing. And you know, we really want to create a team, a group of like-minded people within one global who essentially want to work together for the benefit of the client. Okay, So we focus every day in trying to take away those barriers around individual P&Ls and individual incentivization and all those. So we try to keep that much more at a team level so that people work together. And we find that culturally that works much better for the clients. And so trying to envisage some sort of structure where you would have different cells of different brokers that are all sort of competing against each other and in a viper's nest. I mean, it's quite a difficult one for me to envisage. Certainly wouldn't fit with what we're trying to do now culturally. And on that culture question, I remember a couple of years ago, you were talking about the cultural challenge that the industry was facing. Obviously, time's moved on, but we also had a recent employee A-related fine from Lloyd's. Do you think we've still got a long way to go on this? Look, I do think we still have a long, long way to go. But I do think that now that the spotlight has been on it for a number of years, that we're starting to make some progress. With something like this, Mark, it's a generational change that needs to happen. And for me, it's all about respect. And I actually find as generations come through, they act in a different way in terms of respect, just naturally. We don't have to try and change it and force them to do that. They generally do. And so to my mind, the spotlight is on this and certain changes have been made in the marketplace. They're hard to see because they go slowly. Everything shifts quite slowly. But I suppose if I challenge you to just look at how business is done today, and then reflect back in your own mind to 10 years ago and draw a line, you'll really see a big difference when you look at it in that fashion rather than the creeping change that you see every day. And look, sometimes we utilize things like quotas in relation to diversity, whether it's gender diversity or whatever it is. And sometimes when you do that, the pendulum swings too far the other way. So it's a very, very tricky thing to change. And particularly in relation to gender diversity in our business, we really struggle with it because I think that we have to go right down through the business and look at the things that are causing female members of staff to leave and leave the workforce and not make their way through to the top of organizations. And so we are seeing much more progressive policies and procedures taking place within firms to try to neutralize that a little bit. For instance, the sharing of maternity leave, paternity leave, and parental leave and all those things. I think those are the sorts of things we need to focus on. And they won't change the dial instantly. It's going to take time. But the fact that the spotlight has been shone on, I think everybody's had to step up and take notice and try to move the dial on it. And I think we will get to the right spot, but it's going to take time. I suppose everybody of our age and older knows that they can't behave exactly the same way that they would have done 25 years ago. I suppose that's obvious and that is progress, isn't it? I find just by interacting with 20, 25-year-old people that we're hiring into our business, they just act and think and talk in a very different way. It's funny because I always thought my parents were very old and they never understood what we do. And of course, <laughs> now I can see 
that they weren't really. They just were a different generation, and we're a different generation to these 21, 22-year-olds. But all of those things, I think, combine and meld within a company to create a culture. And there's no doubt there's been some stuff that's gone on within our market that is just not acceptable, frankly. And these things have to be stamped out. But to me, it's much more about getting this gradual cultural change to happen within businesses. And I think it's slowly happened. I suppose we're never going to be able to stamp out bad behavior because that would be wonderful to stamp out all evil everywhere, but that is probably unlikely to happen. (laughs) I don't think it's within our powers, really. No. So uh, we can, but try. In 2020, you were really enthusiastic about all the prospects for London market reform. Do you think we've made enough progress since then? This is more on the technological side. Frankly, no. I don't think we've made enough progress. We did take a leap forward really through COVID, but not necessarily in terms of technological platforms, but in terms of people just instantly having to use technology as a marketplace. I think we took a quantum leap forward in relation to that. That's been helpful. But I still think the market is very fragmented in terms of systems. There's no clear direction as to whether one platform or another is the one that's going to take over. And everybody is, if you think about it, you look at a piece of wholesale business that's being placed in the market, it's been processed four times in different brokers and different underwriters and Lloyds. All of that, I think, is still immensely inefficient. But it's a little bit like what we talked about with the issues around gender inequality and everything else. These things won't change overnight. They're going to take time. And look, at least the spotlight's on it. We've started to make some change and we'll get there eventually, I'm sure. At least culturally, everyone's accepted that we do need to do this now. And this is actually going to happen. Whereas before you might be able to get away with, oh, it'll never happen. And then you'd be proved right because whatever system failed, you know, there was a project that failed or, you know, happened. Yeah. That won't happen anymore. I think through the COVID period, it was remarkable that everything actually worked and people were forced to get on and use technology and learn about technology and everything worked very well. So it almost works too well because we can't get people back to the office now. So <laughs> The only thing that the office has really got going for them, of course, is that you've got air conditioning, whereas yes. people don't have air conditioning at home. They've all got heating at home. They don't all have air con. This is UK employers particularly. Indeed, indeed. And we should be able to get them in in the winter as well because the <laughs> price of heating is going to be terrible. <laughs> One of the silver linings of the high inflation environment, yes. Indeed. One of those technological advances that's really progressed in the last couple of years, because it was only just kicking off two years ago, I want to ask you, it's starting to mature a little bit. How has algorithmic or automatic underwriting, it's starting to mature. So have you got now a better view of what you think it might do to the market over a longer period of time? And how is it changing the way you do broking? I suppose there's two aspects to it. So one is, if you go back a number of years, you would hear the comment in the marketplace that, all this stuff should all be done through algorithms because you're really just looking at loss history and loss ratios and triangulation. And so why do we have brokers at all to do these things? And so that was something that used to perplex me five, seven years ago quite a lot. But I think I've learned now that particularly in specialty classes of business, I don't think the algorithm is ever going to replace the broker. Okay, What it will do is enhance what the broker can offer. Because a broker is effectively a consultant in relation to an insurance coverage or transaction. And I think the use of algorithms, the use of data can only enhance how they look and the view they take of a particular risk when they bring it to the marketplace. So I think that's one side of it. I do think that we have seen, particularly in the US, just exclusively algorithmic underwriters. And I'm not sure they've all worked very well. 
So I think we've sort of gone through that period where it's been tested quite a lot. And I would say there's no doubt that data and analytics and algorithms bring a lot to the broadening process and really help in terms of placements. But I just don't see that it's the be-all and end-all. You still have to have sensible input from brokers and clients to get to the right spot. And I suppose given where you're playing, you're less likely to have the sort of volumes where you can bring meaningful portfolios together that would interest one of these sort of new entities. Yeah, at this point, I think that's correct. But that doesn't mean that we don't have quite a lot of data that we can utilize in relation to our client placements. So there are various levels of how it can be used and there's a use for it for sure. Well, another thing that's absolutely exploded in the last two years has been the three-letter acronym ESG, and with a lot more talk about net zero since COP26 happened. And that's really started to spill over much more into insurance and the way that environmentalists have discovered insurance and started protesting up and down Lime Street and other things, for example. What do you make of all the opportunities and potential threats that are being thrown up by this transition to ESG and net zero transition, particularly in your business where some of those classes, you're really very close to all this action? Well, first of all, as a relatively new broker on the block, two years into our new brand, we really had the opportunity to set our business up and take that very seriously as a business from day one. And so things like paperless office and recycling and all those things, we've been very careful to make sure that we took those opportunities up front rather than having to make the change in three or five years time. So that just from our own point of view, I think that's been really good. There's a lot going on out there in relation to ESG. I mean, probably one of the biggest issues really is around global warming and climate change. And in 2021, I think there were about $100 billion of losses in the marketplace that you could attribute to climate change. And if you go back over the last five years, it's probably the same number each year. So there is no doubt there are a lot of insurable exposures out there in relation to losses that can be linked to climate change. But I think we have a responsibility as brokers to guide our clients through this. I mean, I certainly wouldn't think that we should just walk away from our clients if they're producing coal right now and say, we'll only deal with you when all your production is wind power or something. I mean, we have to handhold our clients through this change. And so there's a big demand out there for it. I mean, the International Renewables and Energy Agency, ARENA, have said that in order to meet the Paris Climate Change Summit, goals of keeping global warming within one and a half degrees of where it is right now, then renewable energy needs to increase from 25% of current capacity to 86%. And so how do you make that transition and over what period of time? And so we want to help our clients to do that. So we've been very focused in setting up a renewables broking team. So we've started to build that out right now, but we've put them alongside our energy team and frankly said to them, This is a transition. You guys are the old school. This is the new school. We must help our clients to transition between these things. And I'm not so sure it's helpful that certain markets are just taking a stance and saying, bang, I'm not writing coal anymore. I mean, given what's going on in the world right now, I think we're seeing some clients that are finding some real difficulties around that. And to me, I think the more progressive approach would be to say, I aim to be 100% into renewables in 10 years' time. Now, what's the transition to that point in time? And that's certainly how we want to look at it as a business at One Global. So you'd rather see a carbon-heavy client, but with a decent 10-year plan that's credible, and then progress year after year than not, and you'd like to help them along that way? Well, yes. And I'm never going to walk away from my client when they're in their hour of need. And so right now, we'll try to help them. 
and we'll try to transition them through this changing marketplace. But yes, we do want to see what are their plans around getting to a better place in the future, for sure. Because presumably also this ESG scoring is going to start really coming in very soon. Next year, year afterwards, it'll start to kick in and it'll come through the whole value chain. Presumably, you've got to be ready as a broker to explain to a client what the ESG score might look like and how it's going to affect the way that underwriters look at them. You really do. And, and you know that's why we've focused very heavily on building this renewables team alongside our energy team. And you're absolutely right. I think when those scorings come in and you know we have to guide our clients through that process, we're a consultative business. We've got to be able to demonstrate to them what's going on and, and help them to achieve their goals and get their coverages. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Let's make sure we'll check in before another two years of elapse for our next encounter. But thank you so much for your time. And obviously, who knows, with that clock ticking, maybe another corporate activity may have happened between now and then. So good luck with your build and come back for a progress update very soon. Well, thank you, Mark. And look, it's incredible to think that two years have passed since our last discussion, because it seems like yesterday. And I'm sure when we talk again, it will be a a similar feeling. But look, a lot going on in the world. and We just want to focus on our clients and make sure that we can help them and guide them through these tough times. I'm sure that will always stand you in good stead, Mike. So good luck. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go!, Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>